dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing the final episode of the Oregon Wine Board's educational series with the Umpqua Valley. From their website, the Umpqua Valley is home to hundreds of distinct valleys and the most diverse soils in Oregon. The region boasts more varieties than any other and the oldest operating vineyard and winery in the state. The region is home to some of Oregon's most forward-thinking makers and growers. Abacella was the first to plant Tempranillo in the United States, Hillcrest Vineyards, the first plantings of Pinot Noir, and Malbec in the state, and the region continues to form the backbone of numerous Oregon appellated Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris bottling. Join Umpqua pioneers Dr. Greg Jones from Abacella Wines, Dyson Demera Hillcrest Vineyards, and Scott Kelly, Paul O'Brien Wines, to discover the unique, characterful wines from their stunningly picturesque region. While you're listening, please remember to take a moment to t- rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible. If you enjoy this podcast, your wine-loving friends will also, and I would appreciate the share. Slancha. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Again, this is David DeWitt, Trade Relations Manager with the Oregon Wine Board, and we thank everybody for joining us, joining us this afternoon. This is the fifth installment of our Oregon Wine Month educational webinar. Um, we're really excited to talk today about the Umpqua Valley. We have uh, a really great panel assembled for you. So we're extremely excited to, to educate and um, inform everybody of this fantastic region here in Oregon. Um, I am gonna turn it over to our Director of Education, Bree Stock. She is the Master of Ceremonies. Thanks, David. Happy to be back for another Oregon Wine Month webinar. And this time I have a fantastic panel with me which I always love because I get to learn and hear as many stories as you all do. So it's always exciting for me to have some great panelists here. Um, We have with us today, Dyson Damara of Hillcrest and many other wine wineries and wine brands that Dyson's um, involved in, including uh, Paul O'Brien Winery, where we also have Scott Kelly, uh, head winemaker for Paul O'Brien. And also Greg Jones, um, Dr. Greg Jones, who is from Abacella Winery and also a climatologist, uh, world renowned, and uh, who's going to really give you the lowdown on the climate in the Umpqua Valley. Uh, I am not going to do very much talking at all today. I'm just going to um, push all of your questions. So please put all of your questions in the chat or in Q&A. We'll be uh, watching for them. And I'm going to put them all in front of our three panelists today um, to answer all of your questions. So um, don't hold back. Um, And uh, I would love to welcome uh, Dyson to give us um, the rundown on uh, on the Umpqua Valley here and really give us a sense of where we are on the West Coast um, and about the valley itself. And Dyson, just let me know when you want me to push forward to the next slide as well. And you're on mute. (laughs) Many prefer it that way. (laughs) (laughs) no uh thank you for a nice introduction and uh, thank you for all those that are participating and uh, letting us tell our story a little bit uh, the magic of what we call the mighty umpa valley which is a very special place but is not very well known and so i've been asked to touch a little bit on just kind of an overview on umpa valley and i'm going to start at about thirty thousand uh foot elevation to kind of come down i want to put it in context of what uh, is on the West Coast and how we fit into that and then talk a little bit about the history, 
which is a very interesting history that's not very well known. Um, and then talk a little bit about soils. That'll cross a little bit into kind of the, the climate as those two are related, but uh, Greg's really gonna uh, kick that off. And then towards the end, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the future and varietals and that and kind of what we find are most exciting. So, you know, when, when we travel out in the marketplace and we try to paint a picture of what Umpa Valley is for, for many of our customers that have actually never been there, we go out into Texas or the East Coast and that, um, I, I always try to share something that they're familiar with and kind of relate it to that. And my, I think the area that we're, we're most, we share the most in common with is actually the Russian River of California. If you were to, you know, I worked for Mondavi for many years, as, as did Scott, um, who's on this. And uh, many of the old timers and people we worked with uh, will, will come up and, and they'll get out of their cars and they'll look at it and say, oh my God, this looks like Russian River, or even parts of Mendocino. And so we tend to compartmentalize, say Oregon is this and California is this, but really those are just political boundaries. And so if you were to take the Russian River and basically slap it, flip it up over on the uh, north side of the California-Oregon border, the soil types that we have, the landscape to a great extent, a lot of the of the uh, climate is actually shared. And we're actually quite different because of that from Willamette Valley. So most people are familiar with, you know, if you look at the the, the mountains, um, kind of the, the geography of the, uh, the West Coast, we have the coastal mountains, which run pretty much north to south because you have the Pacific plate that's on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean tucking under the North American plate. And as that shaves off, it builds these coastal ranges that we have a very cold body of water off of our coast, of course. Um, and that tends to be blocked by those coastal mountain ranges. But every once in a while, you'll find a place that it infiltrates. And much like Russian River, we have a river called the Umpqua River where that infiltrates, um, much like, uh, Salinas Valley or Monterey, it comes from the north to the south. So we would say Russian River is coolest in the west side near uh, Monterito, Guerneville and that. And then as you get towards the east, you get into Oak Savannah and this. And, you know, in terms of, of, of the landscape, it's that rolling kind of hills. And, and we see it with, um, and we'll get into some, picture, some pictures that show this a little bit. But if we look at the the Umpqua Valley Appalachian, which is the northernmost uh, highlighted section here, if you see where Elkton is, you'll see the rivers that's marked in the in the blue and that that's actually the inlet where the cold air comes in. And much like you get into Napa Valley, where the north end of that is closed off by Calistoga, and on a warm day it heats up and it begins to draw that cool air that's off the south end of the valley that's sitting on top of the bay, and it, this gives you that incredible range of temperatures. We have the same thing which is which is pretty amazing it's a pretty amazing range of, of, of temperatures and climate so as a general rule you can say from the, the farther north you go the cooler it is and then as you move to the south the warmer it is um, to the north of us what really separates us from the Willamette Valley is there's it, it rarely do you see it but you'll see sometimes a mountain range that will go east to west that will block things so when people think of, of Oregon and they think of the Willamette Valley that's that same kind of coastal influence with things like the Van Duzer Gap and Van Duzer Corridor and that but between Eugene and the very north end of our Appalachian as is shown here there's a mountain range called the Kalapuyas which goes north to south which blocks that influence so we're kind of a locked in little valley that's extreme maritime conditions and that but we have this very nice, gentle kind of uh, cooling influence. As for soils, and I can probably use this map as well, um, there's really two primary uh, parent sources for soil. Um, and actually, actually, let me save that for a little bit. Let me, get, let me get a little bit in the history. If we can move down into the history slide, please. Yeah, that, that gives you an idea of the topography. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> old vines, yeah. yeah old vines. So, so this will get a little bit into the history. Um, this is a 1961 planting, which was the first planting of Chardonnay post-prohibition in Oregon. And this happens to be on, on a property that my wife and I are current proprietors of, which is Hillcrest Vineyard, which was started by Richard Summers, the, the pioneer of modern Oregon wine, the first to plant Pinot Noir, bottle Pinot Noir, amongst other things. So... We, um, yeah, he I, didn't actually, just bring Pinot Noir, did he? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. He brought um, old man Louis Martini Sr. had 35 varieties uh, that he pulled from down at Stanley Ranch, which is now, I think, Starmont down in that area, kind of uh, Highway 12, 121 and 29 as you get into Napa Valley. But he brought those varieties up in 59 as cuttings with the idea that he would do, he was one of the first graduates of Davis, with the idea that he would plant Pinot Noir and Riesling and then to see what else would do well. 
And amongst those, those other varieties were things like Barbera, uh, Malbec, um, many of the varieties like Tokai that were very popular at their time, Gamay, and that were planted, um, brought in as cuttings and then planted in 61. But there, there's also a historical perspective of pre-prohibition that Napa has a, a, a tie to, excuse me, um, Umpa Valley has a tie to Napa Valley, that the first Coopers that worked at Behringer when they opened in 1861, which is interesting because I look at this and it's nice. 1961, 100 years before, I've never thought of this before, the Berenger brothers brought over two families, the Von Pessels and the Dorner family, to build cast for them. And if you go to the Berenger founders room, there's a picture up there of some of the Germans building cast. Those are actually people that later moved in the late 1800s to Umpqua Valley. And the one family, the Dorner family, was the first family actually commercially produced wine that we're aware of in Umpqua Valley. And at one time they were making 5,000 gallons of wine and distilling in that and were, were partners, they were barrel makers and that. But they, they planted, which was interesting, um, Zinfandel, they did a field blend, Zinfandel, um, Kleinberger and Sauvignon Vert or what's known as Sauvignese. And that was that those were all blended together to make a red wine that they were making 5,000 gallons of by the early 1900s and selling that in this area. So, I mean, 5,000 gallons in, with the population that we had back then must have been something pretty amazing. Followed by Richard Summers. So Prohibition shut that down. The first winery opened post-Prohibition and first uh, vineyards planted were by Richard Summers, once again in 61 at Hillcrest. We had about six or seven wineries here prior to that. And then I think the next benchmark is definitely uh, Greg's uh, parents coming to the Umpa Valley to find a place for Tempranillo which is a variety that they held, hold close to their heart. And that and, um, after a lot of research looking, you know, different parts of America, this was considered to be kind of the choice place. And I, I'd have to say we are the anchor in America for high quality uh, Tempranillo without a doubt. It's one of the varieties that is a benchmark that you see many of the wineries produce. And it's something you can go into the different taste rooms and kind of see. Um, and Tempranillo is, is, is a variety, you know, of course, it has a long history in California, but not necessarily for fine wine, but it's a variety that's super interesting in cooler areas, as we know from the, the popularity and the kind of the, the um, quality we see and the recognition now to Spain and, and the American market. Following that, and I think this speaks to our area, is that there's tremendous amount of exploration. You know, we oftentimes will have interns that come from Napa Valley, maybe they're from Spain or Italy, and they'll come up here on some time off when they will go to work in Napa Valley, and they'll, they'll, they'll question why in Napa Valley people aren't growing these varieties, you know, other Spanish varieties, Italian, French, and that. And um, Scott knows this better than anyone. He worked for uh, Mondavi at a, at a property La Familia de Robert Mondavi that focused on Italian reds. And there were some brilliant, brilliant wines such as Sangiovese made in the Stags League region of Napa Valley by Scott. But the problem is economically, you just can't do that. And so one of the beautiful things about being here in an area, it's really like if you could go into Russian River today um, in Sonoma County and there's no vineyards, but we have what we know today, you can go in and plant it and it's reasonably priced. So we, we, we have a palette of flavors that we've played with, but there's, there's just so far to go. It's not, you know, I, I think all of Oregon's planted 80 varieties out of the somewhere between 4,000 and 8,000 grape varieties people uh, talk about there being. And uh, it's just, it, it's, it's endless. So we see things like Bruner Veltlinger that have been um, planted. We think we can talk some more about the, some of the Italian varietals. We see Sangiovese, Bacco Noir, Teraldigo, um, you know, uh, you go on and on and on. And so it's, it's very much, it's not only an area of very high quality, but it's an area of exploration. So uh, next slide, please. Uh, that's just um, um, cool map. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Matt. So here we we see the parent sources again, the coastal range, which once again is the um, that's the North American plate being kind of uh, hit by the Pacific plate, the Pacific plate ducking underneath that. I mentioned that you know if you drop somebody off here, kind of blindfolded, oftentimes they would think that they you know were in the Russian River. So that coastal mountain range there, that is mostly sedimentary soils. Um, you see like Russian River's famous for Gold Ridge Sandy Loam. Where I'm sitting right here is a sandy loam that's red in color. It's what we call Iverson. That's a super interesting soil. You have a very large ridge, about 2,600 uh, feet that falls off into this uh, kind of uh, fingers in the valley that float down into the very valley towards the, the river in that. And you'll see conifers and it's that same kind of cold 
a cool, moist coastal forest that you see in the north coast of California. And then you get about three or four miles east, kind of halfway between where you see I Highway 5 is, I-5 there, and um, the boundary on the west side of uh, the Umpqua wine growing area. In many areas, you start moving into Oak Savannah. And Oak Savannah is super interesting because that's where you see, you know, a Hillsburg. And you start seeing warmer climate grapes, you start seeing Zinfandel, you start seeing some Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, like Russian River, that's kind of the exception and not the rule. There are pockets there. So, you know, with tomatoes, they have early season, mid season, late season varieties. The same thing is true of grapes. We categorize them the same way where Russian River can do early season, mid season and some late season or the same way. So it tends to be the same kind of growing conditions. To me, one of the greatest differences though is there's over 150 different series of soils. So Napa Valley is very unusual being there 32. So 150 different soil types. It's, it's the most complex matrix of soils of any wine region I know in the world. And I've been fortunate enough to travel and I read a lot. Maybe there's something out there, but I mean, it is truly, truly amazing. And on top of it, much like Northern Italy, so there, there are some wine regions of the world, they tend to be the better regions for me, that there's very little flatland. And that's one of the reasons I think Umpqua Valley is not as, as well known as the big producers like areas like Walla Walla that you get into and you have large tracts of land, all the sun, all the water you have. We're more like Piemonte that there's no flatland. It's over 75% mountains and hills. And so it's very challenging to figure out what in your little pocket up on the, the eastern exposure, top of the hill, bottom of the hill, southern exposure, northern exposure, what you grow. But the potential for quality is fantastic, but it comes much more slowly because each and every grower has to kind of discover for themselves their property and you know as, as we've seen from Europeans that send their family members to the to the west coast of the United States or really the new world that exploration is everything to be in an area that's defined legally and, and and restrained really is not interesting for us you know I mean maybe the great wine of 100 years from now of Umpqua Valley hasn't been planted yet you know there's so many beautiful interesting varieties that are opening up so anyway uh, next slide I guess so we talked a little bit about the, the, the coastal, the Cascades and that. The, Greg's going to get much more into, into climate, which is very, very fascinating. Uh, we've talked about the dirt. Um, I'm a dirt guy, and, and that's the most fascinating thing. When I came up here, the only people really knew much about that were the forestry folks, because they tried to figure out, they say Los Angeles was built out of Douglas County, where Umpqua Valley is, and um, those people knew where Doug Fir would grow the fastest, but we have everything from the, the sandy loams that I talked about. We have uh, vineyards that have like cobblestone to them from massive water blowouts and that, and so we have this matrix of soils when you overlay it with what Greg's going to talk about, the climate, is, is truly a super special area that you know you, we talk about it but also when you go to taste the wines the wines reinforce that um there's a, I always talk about point of sale and point of consumption when we put wines in people's mouths um they, they see this and and anyway it's 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 a very it's it's a unique place there's a fingerprint of the gardens that are here and that's kind of where we are is exploring it so it's kind of like the northern willamette 1980 where you know people said over on this road somebody's pulling out a vineyard or an orchard uh filbert orchard and planting this and you go down here to the county line and road and somebody's planting this we're still the same way we have a little few appellations that are kind of uh recognized now or sub appellations but it's really kind of the the wild west in a in an incredible way with our under modern understanding that leads for a very bright future so yeah it's pretty exciting about how many varieties that we have access to now and that ability to be able to you know have have abundant rainfall uh, you know warm growing season that's capable of ripening so many different varieties depending on the aspect and of slope and the climate that comes through here as well and I love this um, map Greg that that you've given us here um, to give a, a bit of an idea of of just the elevation changes um, and just how how distinctive that you know these river systems are but then you know to Dyson's point just how many valleys and mountains and um, you know carved little valleys there are um, because of of all of that ancient you know geological change, but then also all of the rivers that have moved through here as well. So is it my turn? Yeah. Do you want to talk about tell us a little yeah. bit more about the climate? Well, I, I, I just want to kind of back up some of the things Dyson was saying and also Bree was uh, just mentioned. Um, I, I've been very fortunate to have both uh, been part of a family growing grapes in the Umpqua Valley, 
but also doing research in the region and being able to, to drive the back roads of, of Southern Oregon and the Umpqua Valley have been just an absolute treat. Uh, I think there's just some spectacular landscapes and places to visit. And all of these little valley extensions have potential, I think, for growing grapes. And there's just so many potential opportunities out there. I just think that this shows uh, quite a bit of that nature of that landscape from the north to the south uh, throughout the Umpqua uh, Valley. Go ahead to the next uh, slide, please. When uh, we talk about the climate of this area, uh, I have to come back to, oh, Bree, I just noticed we have a misspelled name down there. Oh, do we? Abacella is spelled as you would pronounce it, Abacella. Abacella. <laughs> so anyway, hopefully, hopefully everybody can laugh with me on that one. Um, so, so I, you know, I just want to touch base. This is my family's vineyard. I'm looking out uh, uh, out the window at this property right now. And I can tell you that back in the early 90s, when my father and stepmother wanted to uh, grow Tempranillo in Oregon, they looked for a place that would allow them to do that, uh, where the, the land was still at a reasonable price, the, the infrastructure, the community, everything behind it was here. And, and the bigger piece of all this was the climate for my father and my stepmother. And I helped him go through a lot of this process in terms of what we were trying to better understand about where grapes grew in the world and what kind of climate influences there were producing the situation by which we could grow quality fruit and therefore make quality wines. Next slide. Oops, there we go. <laughs> So I've just got some uh, information here. I want to expound upon each one of these points because as Dyson said, we have this wide diversity of landscapes, which in turn produces wide diversity in climate. And, and all of that is driven by the geology, of course. Uh, the Umpqua Valley has mountains to our west like most west coast regions do, but ours are fairly unique in that they, they, they protect us a little bit, but they also allow enough rainfall in uh, throughout uh, the, uh, the year. Um, so we have this, this framework by which we have a wide array of terroirs. Uh, they're becoming more and more recognized over time. And I think that they will continue as more and more people find the, the, the nature of the Umpqua Valley as a wine growing region. The, the second bullet in here I think is really important. A growing season for wine grapes needs to be roughly six and a half to seven months long. If it's too long, then the fruit doesn't know when to ripen appropriately. If it's too short, the fruit can't ripen appropriately. So what we end up with is we end up with places, you know, closer to the equator that tend to have really long growing seasons, which are really hard to manage growth and, and, and ripening, or places further toward the polar regions in which it's sometimes often hard just to even ripen the fruit. So we have this growing season that really fits the ideal biology of the vine uh, to uh, bring it toward ripening right at the time when we're starting to cool down at the end of the uh, season. So we typically have a six to seven month growing season, a short spring, a fairly warm to hot and dry summer. And then the autumn is fairly short as well. It, it comes on us pretty quickly and, and we transition from there into winter. We do have sufficient annual precipitation. We're not as dry as some places to our south or, or further inland. We have a, a, a fairly reasonable annual precipitation, but low growing season rainfall, roughly 10 to 20% of annual. And most of it comes early in the year and very, very late in the year. And then the last piece of that is, is that we have very low ripening period rainfall, meaning the last you know, 30 or so days before ripening, we have a tendency to be much uh, lower rainfall than some places to our north and even uh, uh, to the south. Our growing season temperatures and heat accumulation or growing degree days um, typically range from relatively cool to intermediate to somewhat warm conditions. So we have a range of, of ripening climate, so to speak, based upon our landscapes and geology that they produce. We also, if you move into, um, into the ripening period, 
we, as I said, we have these nice cool nights here, but really what we have are these diurnal temperature ranges, which are really ideal for telling the vine to ripen the fruit and produce some of the most delicate, wonderful aromas and flavors that you'll find anywhere. I've done a lot of research in the, in the climate uh, space uh, in vineyards worldwide, and there really are not places in the world that I can find that have greater day-night temperature differences during ripening than the Umpqua Valley in Southern Oregon. It's uh, really pretty dramatic, and uh, I think this is what allows us to uh, ripen our fruit in, in, in the right kind of framework to really allow it to express itself the way it's supposed to. Next so, slide. Greg, what would what would the um, the average you know temperature be during the day, and then what would it drop down to at night? So for for us in September and October, we're typically looking at maybe a maximum of eighty degrees during the day and fifty degrees at night. So a fifty degree diurnal temperature range during that part of the year, getting toward the end of September, is is really uh, quite large for uh, most wine regions throughout the world. If I just give everybody an example, if you go to Bordeaux, Bordeaux uh, rarely gets into uh, maybe 75 or, or so during that period of time, but the nighttime temperatures don't drop as low. They, they, they stay elevated in the 60s uh, most of the time. So they don't have that nighttime coolness that really helps develop uh, freshness and retain acidity within the fruit. And is that mostly being moderated by the ocean influence that's sort of getting pulled in as the valley heats up and then in the afternoon it's pulling in that cool ocean influence? Yeah, I think there's multiple different things, of course, that are going on. Number one, uh, elevation, distance to the coast, and the type of uh, um, ocean that we have offshore, which is cool enough uh, to keep that, those, um, those uh, wind patterns in flow uh, at a temperature that really is helpful. If we had a little bit warmer ocean, we would probably elevate quite a bit in temperature uh, overall. So, um, you know, going back to this idea of, of our landscapes producing a lot of variation and framework behind it, I, I think we, we have a very equitable climate from all of this framework. Uh, can we go to the next slide? Yeah. Um, Greg, there's a question about uh, when set happens. Is it in mid-June? Yeah, I so I, I didn't include any of this data here, but uh, we typically in the Umpqua Valley go through uh, bud breaks somewhere between the 5th and 15th of April. We go through um, um, uh, flowering and then fruit set sometime between the, the 5th of June to about the 15th of June, and then verasion when color change and sugar uh, development starts happening is sometime in early August. Uh, to mid-August. And then uh, ripening really is quite variable depending on the variety and the location, but we can go anywhere from early September to uh, middle of October, depending on uh, many factors. But, but going back to this idea of an equitable climate, we have this really, I think, a very ideal place in terms of uh, the, the climate itself. But the other piece of it is we have very low climate risk. And I think this is really important. It was important for my family when they were first coming here to look at this, this area. We have very low winter uh, freeze risk. There is, we just do not get as cold as uh, other places a little further inland, a little further north do. So we just don't have that winter freeze risk. We do have low spring frost risk. Typically, we, we get through uh, without much uh, risk there at all. This year, we had a little cold spell. And so we're all looking at that, but uh, most of the time, very, very low frost risk. We also have low fall frost risk. And the reason that this is important is you don't, once you harvest the fruit, you do not want your vines going into a real cold period too quickly because that can actually damage them going into the next growing season. So we have this uh, a very, a very low fall frost risk as well. The other component is, yes, we're warm during the summer, but our heat stress numbers are lower typically than many other places, especially to our south. So we have, uh, uh, we have enough uh, heat to, war uh, to ripen varieties, but overall we don't have as much heat stress. And this produces, as I said, what I think are nearly ideal ripening climates for a wide range of varieties that we work with here. Next Greg, slide. When, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
when when you say heat stress, are you talking about the um, need for the uh, plant to shut down or close its stomata and stop that um, ripening or photosynthesis process? Yeah, heat stress can be manifested in quite a few different ways. Uh, of course, uh, low heat stress when the vines are water stress can be a problem too. But most of the time when we talk about heat stress, we're talking about what are the upper temperatures that cause the vine uh, to um, more or less shut down and not start and stop producing uh, carbohydrates and photosynthetic uh, activity. And so the issue there is, is that every variety has a slight difference in terms of those numbers. For some varieties, it could be as high as uh, 100, 105 degrees, and others, it could be 95 degrees. And so we just, when you look at the numbers of the number of days above 95 or 100 or 105, the Umpqua Valley tends to have a lower heat stress uh, a number overall during the growing season. And that results in those very um, precise aromas and bright fruit flavors and... Well, I think what it does is it allows us to ripen the fruit without being damaged in terms of the overall uh, uh, heat stress. Heat stress can actually cause harvest to be later than it would be otherwise. So, so without that heat stress, we're able to ripen the fruit into that cooler part of the uh, ripening period. Great. So go ahead to the next slide. I think we got another lovely picture of the region. Uh, here we are looking out at uh, one of the large vineyards in the Garden Valley area. Again, a lot of different landscapes uh, that we uh, can grow grapes here within the region. Uh, next slide, please. Everybody's heard a little bit of this, uh, I think the term, the sense of place. Uh, somebody, I think Matt Kramer once wrote about it being somewhereness, if that's a word. Not sure it is, but I, I really believe that this is important for, for, for this region. Our latitude fixes the, the photo period, uh, which creates a growing season that's not too long and not too short. It is all driven by the fact that we have this very geology and soil that produces all the, uh, the frameworks by which we plant today, but it also produces this climate that I think is ideal for quite a few of the varieties. I've just given a, a short list of ones here that ripen right at the climatic edge in a growing season that's just right for them. We get varietal character, we get natural acidity being retained in the vines, we get nearly ideal bricks level, sugar levels for the varieties we grow. And I think this allows us to make the best wine from the varieties that we grow here, virtually compared to any place in America. So that's kind of my, my take on the climate component of this. Um, Bree, do you have anything else you want to add to that? No, I was just thinking that I, you know, I was just thinking quite broadly about the, you know, wine growing regions in the U.S. and, yeah. and thinking about the number of grape varieties that you find in, in the valley and, yeah, how how all of them are great expressions of the varietal but also of that moderate umqua climate as well. You have you have ripeness without high alcohol, you know, without excessively high alcohols or stewed fruit flavors, and very good varietal typicity. Um, and so that's I was just thinking about. I can't think of another area that has just so many grape varieties planted. Another wine region um, that can do so many varieties so well. And, and, you know, just to add to that, I'm not even sure we know the potential range of varieties we could do. Um, I, you know, we, we have this statement that we have over 40 and I, that, that's proven, but I think we could actually do quite a bit more uh, and only time will tell. And the new people who come in and find this region to plant grapes and will we'll likely plant new varieties that we'll learn more about. Yeah, we just have so much more access now to, you know, plant material as well that we haven't had in the past. And so um, when you get a region that's so full of curious winemakers and grape growers, you know, it's a, it's such a fun place to visit and to taste through because you can literally, yeah, <laughs> taste the world in, in a single valley. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, Greg, there's one question here about what changes in climate are you seeing and what changes to the grapes are expected in the future? Well, I mean, I, I think the it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I mean, it's been very well documented that climates have warmed. Uh, 
you know, Dyson, I think about this all the time. Richard Summers, when he planted grapes here in the late 50s, early 60s, he did so in a fairly inhospitable climate. And it's really, it's altered um, over time. I think the, you got to give him some kudos for, uh, for understanding what could be grown, planting a few different things and finding out what did better. And then at, over time, we've transitioned into a, a state that is much more suitable for um, growing a wider range of varieties today than, than it ever has been. Um, what does the future hold? I think we're still kind of in a big sweet spot in the Umpqua Valley in general. And, and I think that, that as agribusinesses, we all need to make the right decisions based upon what we're growing both today and in the future. And I can tell you that we, I think, I think the Umpqua has a lot of potential uh, both now and into the future. Yeah. And Scott, I know I love coming down to, to Paul O'Brien to the tasting room there and tasting through the wines with you as well, because there's, there are just so many varieties and we go on so many different tangents and then, you know, we get, you know, we get in the car and drive around the valley and, and the landscape is just mind bogging, boggingly diverse, you know? Um, and, you know, can you give me a sense of what you're looking for, you know, in that landscape for all of the varieties that you work with? I mean, you make great Pinot Noir, great Pinot Blanc, uh, you know, Cabernet Franc, it, it's, you know, you go Rhone, Bordeaux, everywhere. Yeah, and, and it really speaks to what drew me to this area. Uh, having made wine in California for my whole career, as well as Italy and Australia, um, you know, I, I sort of set out on this path, I guess, as we all do once we, once we spend some time in the industry to sort of figure out what I want to do for the rest of my career. And I, and I was looking for something very much European in style. You know, when I was in California, we were hydroponically farming grapevines. Um, we had access to water. We had access to uh, the ability to, you know, keep these vines irrigated. And, you know, just by the nature of, of the climate and what we were dealing with, it was nothing to be pulling Pinot Noir off at, you know, 28, 30 bricks and making super high alcohol wines. And, and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy those wines. In fact, I go back in my cellar now and I pull out some of my resume uh, and drink those wines and, and I just can't do it anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how you change, but I was drawn up to the Umqua and Dyson, you know, and I worked together at Robert Mondavi and I had some attachments to the area, but he drew me to this area. And, and what really was the calling was this idea that we could dry farm and we could produce wines true to terroir and true to region. And the Umqua with this diversity, I was heading to the Willamette just to make Pinot, but what I saw here was the ability to not only make world-class Pinot Noir, but the ability to really uh, experiment and pioneer and play with a, a wide range of varieties. Uh, some of which have been mentioned here, some, some have yet to be mentioned, but um, I love this picture, Bree. This really speaks to topography. And, you know, Valley is, I think we have to be really careful. We are the Umpqua Valley, there's no doubt about it, but most valleys, especially the ones I've worked in, the Salinas Valley, Monterey, Napa Valley, Sonoma, Willamette Valley, those are distinct valleys. Uh, we really don't have a part of our appellation that is a valley in that sense. We are the land of a hundred valleys. Uh, we can't stress that enough, depending on where you're planted, where you choose to plant. And again, this is a perfect picture that shows those hillside rolling hills, the conifers on the west side that Dyson made mention to, some of the uh, oak tree and oak savanna that rolls out to the east side, but it's like facets on a diamond. And now a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Dracina Wines has a wine club? We named it the Chalk Club. Draco is on our label, but Vegas was getting a bit jealous, so we decided he deserved to be our wine club spokesdog. In Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites, and we're gambling that once you taste our wines, we will become one of your favorite wineries. 
The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. We don't ask for a lot of commitment like others do. Choose between three tiers. The Sweet 16, where you'll receive three bottles twice a year and get 25% off all orders. Sign up for the Elite 8 and get 30% off all orders and receive four bottles twice a year. Or make it to the Final Four and receive six bottles twice a year, as well as receiving 35% off all purchases. All tiers receive discounted shipping, are customizable, and are eligible for unlimited referral bonuses. Add $15 to your bank for each person you refer. Head to www.dracinawines.com or the link in the show notes to find out all the Chalk Club has to offer and to sign up. We've stocked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. So depending on what elevation we're at, depending on if we're north, south, east, west, depending on if the uh, upper end of the Appalachian is Dyson Mench is a little bit cooler, southern tends to be a little bit warmer, but there are pockets even within that. Some of the warmest areas in the Appalachian are to the north, but it just tends to be a pocket that tends to not get the, the cool marine air. So I tend to work with uh, a lot of the Burgundian varietal, varietals. Um, uh, as you mentioned, we also do a bit of Bordeaux with Cabernet Franc here is just spectacular. Um, but I also tend to work with Rhone varieties. For Pinot Noir, I've been playing a lot with elevation. And, you know, what's interesting about the Umpqua, the Pinot Noir here is, is very different. A lot of times I find that a region with Pinot Noir will have power or it'll have elegance. You usually trade one for the other. And what we have here in the Umpqua is this beautiful tension between the two of power and elegance that you don't see in a lot of regions. And we'll, and we'll show our Pinot Noirs out to the, to the world as we take them out into the wholesale market, especially. And, and a lot of people are super interested in the Umpqua Valley because you, you see this, this concentration and depth of flavor and fruit and still have the balance, the acidity, the perfume, the elegance that we get from Oregon Pinot Noir. Uh, but done in a much more balanced way. And so I love the Pinot Noirs here, especially we'll have uh, some of my vineyard sites are 1200 feet in elevation. They're old cleared commune sites out in the middle of the, of the fir forest, uh, as well as some a little bit lower in elevation, but maybe a little more near the coast and, and uh, with a quite more age and vine. So we're talking, you know, these are somewhere up around 40 to 50 years of, of age in, in, uh, in vine age. So those are pretty spectacular. Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, you know, across the board, the aromatic whites, um, all the whites here have this, this tension of minerality. And, you know, for instance, the Chardonnays we do at Paul O'Brien, I don't throw a lot of oak or mallow at them. I just really love that sort of almost Chablis style of, 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 of building in acidity and just letting that ride. And Greg mentioned natural acidity. And I just love the fact that you know, the, those diurnal shifts give me the opportunity as a winemaker to work with fruit that just has natural acidity. I mean, we don't we don't buy much acid, if any, um, because we just don't need it. And in, in, in California, you know, it was like bring in the palates because you're always you're always trying to bring the, the pH down. Rhone varieties, I think, are really, really fascinating. And we're really at the cusp of, of exploration. Um, there's a couple of wineries here that have done a fabulous job with Syrah. I'm also seeing um, beautiful Viognier, not that overripe cloying style of Viognier, but Viognier with minerality. Um, there's some Grenache Blanc planted, secret. Wow. There's, you know, the secret's out. Um, <laughs> but a couple different sites have Grenache Blanc now. So I think you'll, you'll see a little bit more exploration on the Rome white side. Uh, GSM, Grenache Syrah Morvedra, really beautiful Grenache here. Both, uh, you know, uh, people make them rosé, Grenache rosé on the uh, early season side, and then and then full blown Grenache is just gorgeous here. Again, there's a tension, there's an acidity there that we typically don't see that makes our Grenache a little bit different. Um, I think than than what you'll see in some of the warmer climates or even Southern Rhone style Grenache. It, it tends to have more balanced acidity, so it's it's a, really an animal within itself. Um, but across those varieties, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I can't wait to see where we go from here. And, you know, there's so much to do and so many, so many varieties and so little time that um, I think we're all, you know, looking forward to the future. And, and yet at the same time, as you taste around the Umpqua, you see a set of world-class wines already. Yeah, I was really impressed with um, a handful of the, the Syrahs that, that 
uh, I was tasting at, at Texom Wine Awards. And I think one of the wines, you know, awarded as best Oregon red wine was a Syrah from the Umpqua, but it had this amazing balance of, you know, ripe brambly fruits, blue and purple fruit profile, but with this element of, you know, peppery, you know, fresh cracked pepper. Um, and, you know, is that, do you think that comes from that diurnal shift or, um, you know, where is, where are you getting this nice balance of, you know, I mean, it was even more, you know, Roan than like, you know, a lot of the Roan is these days. <laughs> well, you know, I'd like to, to add, I think, Bree, I think it's, it's the diurnal shift during ripening, but it's the difference between the cooler locations to the north and the warmer locations to the south because we can find that beautiful fruit characteristic throughout the entire region, but the peppery notes come from a little further north and less peppery notes come from a little further south. So we, I think we get that. I think we get it with both um, Tempranillo, they're very different style, uh, yeah. and, and, and even Malbec to some degree, but Syrah and Tempranillo clearly show that. And I think there's a complexity to the wines here that gets overshadowed by overripeness in some regions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're when you're making Syrah at 16 alcohol and you get those pruny over the top characters with lots of oak, uh, you tend to kind of miss out on the complexity. And what I love here in both Tempranillos, the Syrahs we make, the Cabernet Franc is another one that, you know, is really, really complex. And you get that beautiful white pepper on, on the Cabernet Francs here that uh, I think are, are kind of lost in some of the other regions that, that tend to make Cabernet Franc. Yeah, and I think that is something that's special about um, this region as well, is that you still get that the ripeness of fruit with the with spice character, but it's not a herbaceous mm -hmm. character on the on the border varieties, which is you know, typically what they're trying to get rid of in, you know, Napa and Washington a lot of the time. Um, and we're able to, yeah, get that complexity at that moderate, moderate alcohol levels and, and fresh fruit flavors. You know, I, uh, Bree and, and Scott and Dyson, I, I'd like to bring up the concept of hang time. I mean, mm. we all know what hang time is. Uh, I, when I first, um, started interacting with uh, Richard Smart years ago. Uh, Richard said, if you have to talk about hang time, then you're, you got the wrong variety in the wrong climate. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's the vintage that is a challenge. But, but the idea there is I think that when we look at the Umqua, I think that we don't have to consider hang time anywhere near as much as others do because of that nature of the length of the growing season, and how the varieties ripen right at the end and right at the edge. I think that's really critical. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I'll go back to irrigation, Greg. And, and what I found is we were actually, you know, fighting off these supercharged vines that were baking so much sugar so quick, mm -hmm. yet we didn't have phenological maturity. You didn't have seed maturity. You didn't have flavor maturity. It, it took me a little bit. Dyson, you know, actually kind of had to remind me, he said, you know, we can ripen Tempranillo here at 22 and a half. And, you know, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And, and you start thinking about picking at those because that's when the fruit's actually ripe. Whereas when I was in California, I was, you know, you don't even go out in the vineyard at 22 and a half. No. You know, if we start sampling at 20, you know, 3, 24, 25, as we're starting to, you know, see the skin soften, the seeds brown, and, and those maturity parameters come up, and flavor. That was another big thing. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a, I'd like to refer back to something a, a grower and Barolo, of Barolo, once told me that the, the great seasons for them were the long, cool growing seasons that were dry. And I think mm -hmm. that we kind of build into that, and there's a lot to be said Actually, the, the first time I ever heard of Umpqua Valley was Richard Summers, once again, that started uh, Hillcrest, father of Oregon wine, was an interview that he gave, and he talked about the importance of, 
you know, the right climate during the month that really the flavors are developed at the very end. And it's not only a question of developing flavors, but it's also retaining flavors. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember, you know, I used to walk about 400 acres of Pinot down in Carneros and uh, for Mandavi, and you'd get out of the, you know, get in the, into the vineyard with the sun hasn't risen yet. And you get out of your car and first thing in the morning during a warm spell, you can smell that fruit. If you smell that fruit, that means you're not trapping it in a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. And it's much like blackberries. You go into a, you know, a little creekside in the middle of the, the, the summer, and those blackberries are ripe. When you smell that perfume, it's great, but you haven't trapped it. And so I think we have really an optimal harvest window that, as Greg said, is dry, but it's pushed back a little bit later where we develop because it's not really hot. It's not really cold. We're developing a lot of those flavors, that perfume, but that perfume is really trapped inside the fruit. And then without the, 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 the power that a high alcohol and heavy winemaking there, there in all the wines here there, there there is a power natural power but there's a tenderness and that tenderness of lower alcohol brighter acidity really makes for wines that are are, are so easy to drink and much more classic than i think we see in a lot of areas on the west coast we're really the perfect hybrid of the ripeness of the new world but that kind of that precision that elegance and that balance of, of the old world and i think the comments about the straw spoke to that yeah, and I think that, you know, that what you just hit on that, which Greg has been talking about as well, is that that end season ripening when that temperature drops. And so you're, you're not really accumulating a lot of sugar, you know, you're not like to Scott's point, you know, we're not trying to shut down that sugar, you know, ripening, but what we're getting is that very gentle and mm -hmm. protracted flavor development which so many regions can you know can no longer achieve really yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty special place to um you know to be able to grow you know just so many varieties to such a high quality level mm -hmm. and i think that's what that's what's exciting me about uh visiting the umqua and seeing the wines out in the national marketplace is that there's just a you know obvious high level of quality across so many different varieties and you don't really have to limit yourself to mm -hmm. a single variety uh you know even though pinot noir is the you know most planted grape variety there for now we'll we'll see you know where where everything else takes us as well but i love that there's so many people exploring and um planting different varieties and really you know seeing what the region is capable of it's interesting that the uh, one of the slides had the chart on the right of, of the varietal breakdown that you're referring to, Brie, it had Pinot Noir being number one at 60%. That's really, there, there are pockets that do great wine, but there's also the business of wine where there's a, there are a lot of producers out of the north in particular that uh, come down here and, uh, you know, shop for the good stuff at a low price kind of thing. But the, the real part of that slide to pay attention to is the 5% on the bottom that's the other, and then a couple mm -hmm. of the varieties that are mixed in there. Mm -hmm. Because when you walk into a tasting room here, if you looked at that, you'd expect everybody to make, you know, 10, 10 Pinots and a little this, a little that on the side. Mm -hmm. You walk into the tasting rooms here, and as you know, because you've been down here, you walk in and, I mean, there, there's, Pinot is, is oftentimes presented, but there's, you know, 10 other varieties you've not tasted or heard of before planted in mm -hmm. Oregon. And so so that, that diversity as we explore, but that's really, that, if, if you want the pulse of Umpqua Valley, it's that 5%. What's happening in that, the new varieties, um, things that are in the ground we don't really know about, but then also, you know, what's new in wine? I mean, it's 7,000 year old, you know, industry. So new stuff we, were, we started doing 20 and 30 years ago too in, in the history of fine wine. But um, it, it's really, it, it's so exciting to know you can stick something new in the ground and probably make a very nice wine at least. Why don't, why don't you guys talk about that a little bit? Greg, what sort of things do you guys have going on over at Abacella that's new and exciting? Well, the, the most exciting things, I think, um, beyond kind of what we've become known for, are some of the Portuguese varieties. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Tenta Amarela is just absolutely lovely here. I wish we had more of it. Just a, um, just a, a variety that has a different expression in terms of its fruit characteristics. And I, I just think it has a lot of potential. We also do Tentacao, which is a little bit of, it's our latest ripening variety, but it, boy, it, it adds some real good backbone to our, um, to our port wine program. And then uh, Tanat is one that uh, I think is kind of really a no-brainer for this region. It, it's a fairly prolific producer. Uh, it produces a wine if you can manage the tannins, 
one that has a, a lifetime of uh, aging potential. Um, I, I, so those are things I'm very excited about. I, I, I still think we need to plant more Albarino in this region. Um, I think that uh, it's a very easy variety. And, and you know, uh, what, um, I think what you were saying just a minute ago really hit home for me too. In a warm climate, it's hard to plant multiple different cool to warm varieties on the same site. In a cool climate, it's hard to plant warm to cool varieties in the same site. But within the Umqua, a little bit of variation in the topography, you can plant a range of varieties and do fairly well. At Abacella, we do everything from Albarino to Tentacao and Tempranillo all on the same site. And I think we have the potential here because of that ideal growing season structural climate. And Dyson, what do you guys have going on? You've got some new stuff in the ground, right? Yeah, we got some new stuff in the ground. Yeah, I mean, and there's things that I want to plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the perpetual disease. It's a tough place, Umpqua Valley, because you drive around and you're looking at something that, you know, would be primo site in Russian River and happens to be like, you know, some sheep on it here. <laughs> you know, endless. But um, so what originally brought or made me aware of Umpqua Valley was doing climate research on NOAA's website where they share a lot of data with other governments. And I was looking at that mean temperature the month of harvest and because of that that interview once again that Richard Summers gave and the the importance on aromatics or the focus on aromatics and um and so it was the two areas of the world I was trying to pinpoint uh Piemonte in northern Italy and the two areas that showed up number one was Mendoza Argentina and number two was Roseburg Oregon and I wasn't sure where Roseburg Oregon was I'd, I'd been to McMinnville many times but um and so there, there's an exploration of Italian varietals. So Richard Summers planted, amongst other things, Barbera, which is, is successful. But um, interesting uh, Teraldigo cuttings that I got from Scott at La Familia de Robert Madavi when I first moved up here. And I don't think Scott even had a, a, a gleam in his eye about you know, moving up the valley at that point. There were two, Teraldigo was very successful in that program and two different selections. And I brought one of those selections up that Scott had given me. That's turned into a really amazing, amazing very distinctive wine. I, I say good wines taste like a grape and great wines taste like a place. There's a fingerprint to Toroldigo and Umpa Valley that's very powerful. But uh, the Italian stuff we've kind of, we, we've um, now that we've got our, our feet really on the ground, we've spent quite a bit of time with, uh, we've got a Sangiovese, the Toroldigo was mentioned, uh, you know, Frasia is something of fantastic interest. Frasia is, you know, the variety that really built, the way Malbec built the reputation of Bordeaux, Frasia built the reputation of Barolo Barbaresco before Nebbiolo. And so that's something, but um, I, I wonder about like Petit and Gross Mansing. Those are varieties that are beautiful, beautiful varieties. And this is the disease. <laughs> there are so many varieties out there that, that are really interesting um, to be, you know, something esoteric as I have a little bit of Kadarka in the ground. Uh, which, you know, that's a, a Eastern European variety that a, a friend of mine had brought over many years ago from Hungary, but um, it's, you know, the, the, you, you have to limit yourself somewhat because the other side right. of it is you want to make something that would be interesting commercially or for blending. And uh, so we have to leave something for the future. <laughs> you've, had, you've had good luck with Malbec as well and, and Cab Franc, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I really, I, those varieties are spectacular. As a matter of fact, Richard Summers, when he came up, I mentioned that he went to Old Man Louis Martini and got, you know, these 35 varieties. Um, I asked him on several occasions after we'd taken over, you know, we knew the Pinot Noir and the Riesling were super successful, but of the other 33, if you had to plant a few of those again, what would they be? And he'd always very slowly tell me, uh, Malbec, uh, Malbec, and Malbec. <laughs> <laughs> and Malbec, it's interesting because I don't look at it as really an emerging variety as something's been grown on this property since 61, and um, it makes truly stunning wines. Um, Brie, Brie Selected, as a matter of fact, when we first shut down and it was a, a Oregon wine board tasting for wine writers, uh, one of the wines that was selected to present was a 2013 Malbec that we did that was aged five years, much like classic, classic Barola Barbaresco. Um, super stunning, uh, to me, very, very beautiful wines that um, it's a very different side. It's not the Argentinian kind of very sweet, soft side, and it's not the, the Cahors side, the French side that's kind of more uh, earthy and kind of angular there's a there's a juiciness sweetness of fruit with a beautiful backbone it's that you know scott was touching on that power and elegance that tension and that that variety tends to sing and we see you know i think there's more and more interest in that um but the, you know i look at there were varieties that have been planted here you know that maybe 
people grew them for a while. Once we got phylloxera, a lot of the alternative varieties kind of faded away as you saw the big plantings of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. And I think that's beginning to kind of shift now. And we're beginning to see more of the really kind of esoteric, interesting, pushing the limits a little bit. And, um, you know, as, as well as style, you know, with Syrah and that, I think, you know, the early Syrahs I tasted here were very different than what I taste today. And I think that that, that you know, uh, like Elaine Griot, Rose Hermitage style, when I, when, you know, when Brie was speaking, uh, that, that cracked pepper kind of sweet, but, but very kind of chunky, dense fruit that's fresh. Uh, we do fresh fruit. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing that always, you know, when I look at my notes from tasting across all the varieties down in the Umpqua is that there's this brightness and freshness of fruit. Um, and then the, the tannin profile as well is this elegant, this, there's a, there's no rusticity really, you know, there's a real elegance to, to that tannin profile as well that comes along with that bright fruit that just really carries the wines and, and really lifts the wines from the area, which um, is always really, you know, impresses me and, mm -hmm. um, you know, frustrates me that we don't see more of them in Portland because I think everyone just snaps them up down in the area or, or out and around the rest of the nation as well. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the the good and the bad. I mean, once again, you have these little gardens that have to be figured out and you can't come in and plant, you know, a 1500 acre section of one variety and ship it all over the country um, in terms of fruit. But uh, it's the, the small producer here. I mean, we have many, many producers, you know, Oregon is, is a, a, a state of small producers to begin with, but we have many people that produce, you know, 800 cases, 1500 cases, and that's broken into maybe seven, eight, 10 wines. And so, I mean, literally you don't have the pallet to load to send somewhere. So, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the old world finds itself, a lot of the, the, you know, the peasant regions of Europe find themselves in the same situation that you really, you just don't do it on scale that makes sense to ship it, you know, 500 miles away and yeah. sell it that way. And so that's part of the, the secret of the Umpqua Valley. Yeah, it is. It's it's always such a joy to travel there and discover what's yeah what's hidden in in each tasting room. It's um yeah, it's a really pretty pretty place to and delicious place to travel to. Scott, what are you what are you excited about? Oh, uh, you know, I I think uh, continuing to to explore the Rhone varieties has been fun. You know, the GSM. Um, I've got some new plantings. Uh, of Grenache, uh, brought in some clones of Alban that I'm really excited to see how they do. And, uh, and really, you know, the whites, um, I, I love the aromatic whites and working with, you know, the minerality, as I mentioned before, in Grenache Blanc and Viognier, uh, Albarino. I think there's just uh, so much to be, you know, the Riesling, we just, uh, you know, found our uh, we have a new planting of Riesling that's just come online, back online in 2021. And, and that's just spectacular. And it just reminds me again and again how great the white wines of the Umpqua are. And Pinot Blanc um, is, is one that is just outrageously good. And so it's kind of that alternative, you know, doing, playing around with styles and, and exploring. Um, you take the number of varieties that Dyson mentioned a couple of times, you know, six to 8,000 in the world, and then you apply styles across there. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's the fun thing for me as a winemaker is to be able to play around with what, you know, these great gardens of the Umpqua have to offer and, and hopefully make something world-class and spectacular. Yeah, we certainly, certainly are making uh, amazing wines down there. And uh, for everyone that is uh, on, on the call um, or on this webinar, please continue to, um, you know, when you come out here, don't just stop in, in the north or around Portland. There's a whole world to discover as you start to travel south. And uh, it's definitely worth the journey um, and yeah, great hospitality, amazing, amazing varieties, um, and just great winemaking with really curious and creative uh, individuals. And so I'm, you know, from my perspective, it's always such a treat to, to head to the Umqua and also to be able to talk about these wines as well. It's always difficult to select, <laughs> select what wines you're going to taste from the Umqua because you want to taste everything and you can, but not in a, not in a 60 minute webinar. <laughs> and, and we're not far, Brie. We're only two and a half hours from Portland. Uh, and it's a, it's an easy drive down I-5. I think a lot of people 
uh, forget how small Oregon is in the west side, especially so. Yeah, it really is. a. It is very accessible. Um, and even driving up from somewhere like San Francisco or, you know, it's not it's not, a, you know, pretty it's not an arduous journey. It's a pretty breathtaking journey to take. Definitely. Well, thank you all of you for being here today. Um, I appreciate your time and uh, sharing the stories of the Umqua and the beautiful vistas and painting us a picture for, for everyone here. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people uh, wanting to come and visit. Um, you just made me want to come back and I was just down there. So <laughs> I'll, I'll be seeing you again soon, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank thank you, you. everyone. Uh, David, did you have anything to add about Oregon Wine Month or? No, just think, uh, I want to thank the panel for, for joining us. What a wealth of knowledge and, and certainly the, the passion was palpable. Thank you everybody for, uh, for being on the call. We, I dropped in my email address as well as Breeze. So if there is anything you need for Oregon Wine Month, we are here. We look forward to seeing everybody next week. And again, good job, Bree. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone. And uh, yeah, drink more Oregon wine. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Wine.